Welcome to episode 28, one of many that I've been sitting on for far too long. I sat down with Chris Johnson at a recent American Glaucoma Society meeting to discuss some of my pet peeves about visual field testing and what lies on the horizon. Chris is Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Iowa and a world-renowned perimetry expert. I'm Rob Scherzer, a glaucoma specialist and educator in practice for more than 20 years, and we're talking about glaucoma. Well, welcome to the show. I'm talking today with Chris Johnson, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about random topics on visual field testing, I guess, <laughs> with your wealth okay. of experience over the years. And uh, thought maybe maybe I'd start with a, with a, a pet peeve or two. <laughs> mine with visual fields and see if there's any way we could deal with them. Uh, one of the ones I have is with myopic patients with tilted optic nerves. Uh, we do these visual fields and we'll, we'll get these these field defects that cross the horizontal midline and you know you just sort of look at it and go yeah that's just tilted optic nerve and that should be that you know that that accounts for the visual field but you know some of these patients do have glaucoma that we could be missing and uh, you know we're using other tests to to go by as well but it would be nice if there was a way to do visual field testing but I guess the bottom line is we don't really have the proper control that we're comparing them to because we're comparing them to others of the same age but not to others where their nerves are tilted. Yeah, so. I, I think the tilted disc is a real problem. Uh, this is something with uh, imaging and OCT and also evaluation of uh, uh, optic disc photos that becomes a challenge. Um, but in visual fields, I think one thing that might be helpful, uh, there is a new device now that has uh, the Humphrey Field Analyzer 3 that has a liquid lens that allows for correction of spherical refractive error and it may be that changing the refraction and all will help uh, to evaluate those areas around there. There is something that OCT does also that's very nice but hasn't been implemented in visual fields yet and that is uh, centering the the center of the optic disc to the macula to the fovea right and, and that, that we're having that the, line yeah with the brooks membrane opening yeah being used and getting the center of that to the fovea and that hasn't and been done for the visual hand. fields but if you look yeah. at uh, nasal steps especially in the far uh, periphery it usually spills over the horizontal right and i think correcting for that and doing in a similar alignment as you would do for uh, OCT would be useful. So is there a way to technically do that for field tests? It has been done, but you have to do the OCT first so that you get the angle and the, and the centration of it. I think that possibly with some of the new innovations, there's uh, a new device that we will be evaluating. Um, and I will disclose that I'm a consultant for that oh, company okay. that's doing microperimetry that will have a scanning laser ophthalmoscope combined with microperimetry of the central 30 degrees. And I think by having those where you're able to obtain structural and functional information at the same time would allow you to do that kind of correction. And it may also be possible to look at myopic uh, discs and tilted discs in a fashion that would help to adjust for that. But that's going to take some work 
to yeah. do. I think that's an interesting problem. Um, you know, this is this is something that uh, I see, and uh, I go to NeuroOp conference every morning, and uh, we often uh, go through that with uh, both the imaging right. and the and the fields. Uh, it, it is a challenging issue. And now, is something this something that the, the Flanagan perimeter that, that Heidelberg has, it, it, does, does that correct for that at all too? Or that's just superimposing a normal sort of visual field without correcting for orientation? Yes, it's, it's just do, it's just uh, showing this the information. It's able to acquire it, and it's uh, linked to the uh, spectralis. Right. But it's not collecting the information at the same time or using information interactively between okay. the two. So that wouldn't okay, that wouldn't correct for a tilted disc. Let's no, say. no, no. And I think there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. But that's a good point because obviously in uh, Asian populations and others where high myopia is uh, is an issue, and you have tilted discs, this is a prevalent problem. Yeah. And I think that they can probably provide more information than than others because they see it all the time. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Another pet peeve that comes. To to mind, then we could get onto anything that you want to talk about. <laughs> okay, is uh, the, the the flattening of the the uh, frequency of seeing curve that we get. So, mm -hmm. uh, because of that phenomenon, that as a patient gets a bigger and bigger visual field defect, they become less and less reliable. So they get more and more fluctuation. Mm -hmm. Uh, because our perimeters don't use bigger test targets when visual fields are getting worse. Is there any way in the modern age to correct for that, or do we just become less dependent on a visual field when we need it the most? I think that's, a, that's an interesting challenge, uh, because in the more damage you have in the visual field, the higher the variability. We have done some techniques with Bayesian strategies by tweaking them, a bit where we have been able to keep the variability constant over the entire dynamic range. That was not for standard perimetry but for frequency doubling on the matrix perimeter. And not only our group but several others have found that uh, there's a constant amount of variability no matter how much damage you have. So I think there are strategies that you can use in terms of the way in which you're acquiring the data and, and how you're setting up your strategy that would be helpful. Obviously, as you mentioned, target size is an issue that we've right. dealt with too. We have a special perimeter that has a size six target. And we are looking at that to see if you lose anything in terms of being able to detect small defects or shallow ones with a large target. And uh, also whether the, you can reduce the variability and, and the uh, test-retest reliability of this uh, by using that. Uh, I think that one of the things I became convinced of with frequency doubling, yeah. we had a 10 degree by 10 degree target and we were able to have nearly as good performance in terms of detection of visual field defects with a very large target. So I think, again, there are possibilities, but that's something that uh, will require some further work. Yeah, so... Those are good pet peeves, though. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so are there practical solutions now that, that we could be doing, or are these just specialized machines that you have hiding in your lab? <laughs> well, I, you know, there's a, there's a uh, difficult situation. There's research, and then there is 
the commercial application, right. and that involves marketing and many other issues. So it, it is a balance of, of all of those things. Uh, there has to be a demonstration of value added. So I think if there's enough demand and if there's enough interest in this, that that will drive this. Um, but it takes time. Right. I remember when I first started doing automated perimetry, many people said, this will never replace a skilled perimetrist. <laughs> And if that skilled perimetrist is Doug Anderson or Stephen Trance, I would agree wholeheartedly. Right. However, everybody uses automated right. testing now. Right, find the skilled perimetrist anymore. When people so. started arguing about which machine was better, I thought, we're making progress. <laughs> <laughs> wow. uh, there are some things that I think are, are useful in the horizon, too. So one, thing, one thing that um, I think is becoming more prevalent because structure is showing changes in the macula in glaucoma. Right. And I think that functionally, we don't have many tests that really look at macular dysfunction right now. So I think that's a challenge. Right. And one of the things that I've been uh, interested in is looking at heterogeneous or patchy loss. We don't have any good tests that will uh, allow us to look at patches of loss. There's one that has caught my attention that was developed by Lars Friesen called rare bit perimetry. And I believe that that's a technique where he's using super threshold targets and having people localize with fine detail mapping whether they see one target or two. It needs to be refined, but I think that may be very useful for the macula. So is it like a two-point discrimination sort of test? or uh, It's more of a detection. It's a super threshold target. Okay. Uh, but you have to determine whether you saw one target or two okay. or none. So you uh, press that. And uh, sometimes it will present two targets. Sometimes okay. it will present okay. one, and it does it in a fine detail map. I think that that concept... Uh, and particularly if you're looking at an informatics group that can optimize this, right. um, that might be a way of getting at patchy loss. So what, in what situations would you get patchy loss? Is this an early finding in glaucoma that we're postulating? or? I think that there, there is probably, there's thinning of the retinal ganglion cell complex in right. the macula in glaucoma. Many people have demonstrated that. But I don't think that it's clustered. I think it's more uh, random. So I think right. the patchy loss would be a way of picking this up. Oh, well, that's a good point. So that's, that's one area. The other thing is, is um, home testing and tablets and smartphones uh, are becoming much more prevalent for testing. And they're, they're really quite reliable instruments. And you've, you've been involved in developing a, a tablet. That's testing, correct. Right? That's correct. And I think that this will be very useful for uh, populations that don't have access to standard health care and eye examinations. But I also think that eventually this, uh, particularly in the Western world, will be useful because uh, if we can come up with a way where people could be tested in the waiting room, before they see the doctor, right. rather than watching TV or reading magazines, it would be very useful, very efficient, and much more cost-effective if the doctor had access to the test results for a visual field or other sorts of things, maybe OCT if it's portable, um, before they see the patient, because um, 
Boy, they it, could have like uh, three or four v- rounds of visual field testing while waiting in the waiting room. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, as long as we don't get them fatigued. But I think that this will be the wave of the future because that's the way medicine is going, is being cost-effective, efficient, lean and mean, right. and reimbursement, as we've heard today at, at this meeting, is is becoming a, a more of a critical issue. So I think that is really an area that will be um, much right. more uh, prevalent. And home testing may also be possible. That would be good to do. So we'll combine that with uh, home tonometry also, so patients will get their pressures <laughs> more than the two seconds every four to six months that we're, we're sampling yeah, right now. I'm a firm believer the more data, the better. <laughs> and I think that's a, a useful thing. Another area that might be useful is um, primary care physicians, internists and all, when they're looking at someone with diabetes or right. other conditions, do they need an eye exam or not? Right now, there's not really good criteria that they have for when they should refer a patient or not. Right. And I think having something that would be easy for them to use, like a tablet-based or a smartphone-based system that would be um, efficient for them and making better decisions in that regard would also be useful. Right. There would probably be things like the, the peak camera that's, that's uh, coming mm-hmm. out where they're using it in developing countries attached to an iPhone to yes. take a fundus photo very easily. Yes. Yeah. So I think those are, are to me, exciting areas. And, um, you know, we've reached kind of a plateau with visual fields and with um, uh, photography and such. Right. Imaging is skyrocketing, but it's time to look at trying to do things a little differently and have a paradigm shift. Right. Yeah. So both in terms of the location of where they're they're doing their testing, like the comfort of their own home and mm-hmm. more efficient testing. And also maybe now we'll be able to uh, work on my pet peeves. And yes, now that all the imaging devices anyone could ever imagine are already in the works. Yes. <laughs> and I think the real challenge at coordinating the structure and function, you know, tests that yeah. correlate the two. Yeah, stick them together. And to me, the real challenge, especially with home testing and with waiting room testing, uh, I like to make a diagnostic test bulletproof. Right. And it's much more difficult if someone is testing at home uh, rather than in a controlled environment right, like true. the clinic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. But have to have some degree of testing in the clinic. But I guess some of that could serve as as screening tests uh, mm-hmm. that you could do more detailed tests in the office. Yes. And yeah. Any other uh, things? I you think have in that's. Mind about I think that's about it. Yeah. Uh, covered I, an awful lot in the short time there. <laughs> cool. It's yeah, great, great talking to you again. Oh, Thanks it was so much. a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> That's our show for today. Thanks for your patience as I slowly push out new episodes, including my discussions with Ron Fellman and Murray Johnstone, that will be out soon. If you subscribe via iTunes, Pocket Casts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found, you will get the new episodes as they come out. If you like the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends about it. Drop me a line at podcasts at iGuy.org, that's I-G-U-Y, with your comments, visit wholeotorob.com, westcoastglaucoma.com, or follow me on Twitter at Rob Scherzer. 
Links to all these are in the show notes. Remember to keep fighting glaucoma by early detection so that nobody loses vision from this disease.